The last section of our scripture is again from Acts chapter 10, beginning at the second part, excuse me, of verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a loud, or large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, including beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that would have been the Jewish people, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Today we're continuing our sermon series, uh, Summer Vacation, and uh, if you recall, or maybe this is your first Sunday with us, what we're doing is throughout the course of the summer, looking at different scripture stories or passages where individuals or some of God's people would take a journey. And we're looking at the different ideas and and relevancy that we can pull out to apply to our own lives. What lessons can we learn from God's people as they as they took journeys, as they took trips throughout uh, the Bible? Well, you'll notice that the the title of the sermon is Journey to Joppa, uh, which you you can see that they go to Joppa to get to get um, 
to get Peter before they travel back to Caesarea. But I thought about a different title. Maybe you'll remember some of you'll remember the, the, get the reference to the movie. Guess who's coming to dinner? Remember that movie? Uh, it, it was starring Portier and, uh, and Hepburn and Ross and Tracy. And, and the movie was a great movie. It includes themes of similar to this story, it includes themes of, of food and a clash of cultures and race and social mores and barriers that are being crossed and encountered. And, and just as we find in Acts chapter 10, some of these same themes are happening as, as, uh, as Peter comes in contact with, with Cornelius, uh, this Gentile Roman soldier. Now, um, one of the things that we want to pull from this is that this was a historical moment in the life of the church. Uh, it was actually a very pivotal moment in the life of the church because the question that was really being asked behind all of this is how big is God's kingdom? Who can be included? How inclusive is the gospel? Is it just for Jewish people with a certain tradition and culture? Or is God's kingdom open to all people who believe in him and who put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins? That, that's the, really the question that is being asked underneath this story. And it's, it's, it's the answer to this question changed the course of Peter's life certainly Cornelius's life at the early church and even for us today. So before we look at this story, though, let's, let's kind of take a little bit of time and set the table, set the context. Um, if you've read through the Old Testament, you'll know that there, there's all sorts of kind of strange laws and commandments, especially in like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and some of those places. Don't eat this. Do eat this. Wear this type of clothes. Don't wear these. Don't touch this. Do touch this. Worship this way. Hang out with these people. Avoid these types of people. And when you read through it, you think, okay, what is the, what is, what's going on here? What is God trying to teach his people? Well, we must remember first is that, is that when the Israelites came out of slavery, uh, they, uh, they, were, they had been living in the midst of all these other gods and all these other worship rites and, and types of foods and culture and, and all these sorts of things. They had no law at the time. They had no Bible. And so God was trying to teach them the idea of you, you are to be distinct and different from the people around you. Distinct and different. And in, in doing so, you will you'll let people know that I'm the one and true God, the living God, the one only God. And so God gives them these laws to teach them that, but also to protect them for corruption or contamination. And whenever they were to hear these laws read or were to put these laws in their practice, they were to remember that they were to be different as God's people. But as often happens over the centuries, they began to lose the big picture, as we can often do in our relationship with God. They began to lose the point behind God's commandments, not that they were to be exclusive and have nothing to do with the world around them, because after all, back in Genesis 12, God, the Abrahamic promise that God makes, he says, you'll be a father to many nations and a light to all people. And you'll be your people will be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so we can see from the very beginning that God's intent was not that they be totally exclusive and have nothing to do with the nations around them, but they were to be distinct in the world, but not of it. The problem is they began to see these rules as designed to keep them apart from other people to exclude others unlike them. But God had given them not to keep them apart, but to set them apart, to make them a holy nation consecrated 
for the blessing of other people and other nations. The gospel tells us that God doesn't want anyone to be lost, but all to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to feel unwanted or unloved and not included. And so God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to to these people who have kind of lost their way. At least the the leaders have lost their way. And and God sends Jesus and Jesus comes and, and through his life and through his teaching, he tries to model and explain to them, this is what God is about. This is what God's kingdom is about. You see, at that time, religious people generally thought if you were holy, that meant you were exclusive. You would you would avoid certain things and certain people. So, for instance, if you were to be a holy Jewish Pharisee or leader, you would avoid a lot of association with women. You certainly wouldn't hang out with tax collectors. You would avoid lepers and the sick because they would make you unclean. You would not associate with people who followed certain dietary laws and rules. You would not associate with people who didn't wash their hands the right way before they ate a meal. And you certainly would not associate with people who, like a tanner, of followed jobs that were called despised trades. You know, a tanner would handle dead animal skin. That would make him unclean. They certainly wouldn't touch Samaritans. And most of all, they would not have anything to do with non-Jews, with Gentiles. They thought this made them holy. And Jesus said when he came to, he, he confronted these things. And one of the areas that he, one of the places he confronted them over this was in Mark chapter 7, where he says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes. That evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You know, it's ironic that the, the very thing, being exclusive, having nothing to do with the, with the people around them who are not Jewish, this very behavior that they thought would be most pleasing to God was actually, in Jesus' eyes, their biggest sin. As you look through the scripture, that was a sin that he got most fired up about. And the very people that the Pharisees excluded and avoided and shut out Jesus would say to them, come in, come into my kingdom. There's room in my heart for you. There's room in my kingdom for you. Jesus in the gospel makes space for people he did not have to make space for. You think about that's really what God does for us in creation, right? The glory of creation is about God making space for people he didn't have to make space for. And so Peter and the disciples had been following Jesus for three years and watching him do this. And they noticed something odd kind of created a little bit of a a dissonance in their mind. Jesus was clearly the holiest man they'd ever seen. He knew God like nobody else did. He embodied truth and love and purity and wisdom in a way they had never seen before. But on the other hand, at the same time, he was the most inclusive, approachable person they had ever met. He's called a friend of sinners. And this rocks their world. It violates all their internal wiring and their perspective on who's in and who's out and what God's kingdom, who can be a part of God's kingdom. And after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and brings in a new era of God's kingdom. And now everybody who trusts in the Lord can be a part of God's people. 
So into this setting, Peter meets this man named Cornelius. As we hear and know, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. Now, if you were a devout Israelite, you would have nothing to do with a Gentile. In fact, a devout Israelite would say this prayer every day. Blessed art thou, O God, who did not make me a Gentile. Now, can you imagine praying something like that in today's world? Pick whatever nationality or race you want and say, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who did not make me, you know, one of those people. Few of us would hopefully pray that, pray that prayer. The Gentiles were so despised that there was a, a, a rabbinic teaching that you should not help a Gentile woman who was giving birth. Why? Because that meant another Gentile was coming into the world. Another one of them. We don't need any more of them. Don't help them come into the world. And Cornelius is one of them. And worse yet, he's a Roman soldier. He, he's a part of the occupying force in their country. He's someone to be avoided, not to be touched, don't talk to him, and certainly don't go to his house for dinner. But Cornelius, we're told, God has been stirring in his heart, drawing him to him. And Cornelius is attracted to this God of Israel, and he prays to this God, and he gives money to the poor in response and puts his, his faith into action. But he doesn't understand everything yet. And, and he lives in a city called Caesarea, which was named after Caesar, lots of Roman soldiers there. And so God speaks to him and says, I've heard your prayer. He talks to him through a vision and I know your heart. There's there's room in my kingdom for you. Send some of your men to Joppa to get this man named Peter and bring him to bring him to yourself. He'll give you more instructions. Now, the last time that the town of Joppa appears in scripture is in the story of a man named Jonah. Remember Jonah's story? Jonah was also supposed to go and talk to Gentiles. He was to go to a place called Nineveh, this great city that God does not want to see lost. It's filled with Assyrians, but Jonah doesn't want to go. He does not want to see them saved. He does not want to see them get to know God. He does not want them included in the family of God. The story of Jonah is a story about racism and exclusivity and hard-heartedness towards others, a lack of love. And in the story of Jonah, God says to Jonah, remember this, shouldn't I care about this great city? Shouldn't I care about Nineveh? And Jonah answers, no, you should not care about Nineveh. But as we know, God does care. God does love the people of Nineveh. And now God comes to Joppa again, and he wants another Jewish man, this time Peter, to bring his word of repentance and hope and love and inclusion in the kingdom of God to a Gentile man. And does anybody, by the way, did you notice what the name of Peter's father was when we read this? Blessed are you, Simon Peter, son of Jonah. Jesus calls him that. Peter was the son of Jonah in a lot of ways. Also, we'll notice in Acts 10 that that Simon Peter is staying at the home of another man named Simon the Tanner. Again, he's beginning to get it. He's staying with a tanner. Remember, that would have made him unclean, but he's, he's made it part way. He understands the gospel part way, what it means to include people. But he's not there all the way yet. God is trying to grow him and mature him and teach him, soften his heart and teach him about his own heart, God's heart for all people and the radical nature of the gospel. It's sort of like this. Think about when you when you have kids and you try to teach them how to ride a bike, right? You put on training wheels so they don't fall and get hurt. They, they can't they're not they can't really 
do it on their own yet. But when they get older, the training wheels come off, right? It would be kind of silly if you had a teenager who was riding with training wheels still, right? It, it would be kind of odd. In a sense, Jesus comes to him and says, there was a time when you needed to learn what it was to be separate and distinct and different. You're still called to be set apart. But now it's time for the training wheels to come off. Now it's time for you to go into all the world and tell people of my love and my truth and tell them about my son, Jesus Christ, and that they can be a part of the kingdom, part of the family. It's time to grow up a little bit. And so Simon Peter, we find him at the house of Simon the Tanner, and he, it's about lunchtime, and he has this trance or dream or something like that, and he sees all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean, being lowered down from heaven, and hears God say, take and eat. And as we see in the story, Peter says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not supposed to eat unclean things. I've never done that. I won't do it. By the way, there's another rabbinical teaching that when Messiah comes, all animals will be named clean. Peter must have forgotten that one, I guess. So in this dream, God's saying to Peter, you've been thinking about separation and what makes an animal clean or unclean. And you've been thinking about which people are clean and which people are unclean. And even on a deeper level, you've been thinking about who ought to be avoided, who ought to be excluded, and who shouldn't be touched in your world. And so three times Peter has this vision. And then the men from Cornelius come to the house where he's staying. And in verse 33, it says, Peter invited them into his house to be his guest to show them hospitality. He's getting it, but he's not all the way there yet. He's invited these Gentile men into his house. So he's, he's taking a big step here. You know, in the ancient, ancient world, hospitality was, was a big deal. Uh, in the Bible, hospitality is a very important word. It's a spiritual gift, in fact. One definition of biblical hospitality would be making space for someone that you don't have to make space for. When you open your door, when you open your heart, it means you and I are connected. There's room and there's space in my life for you. When that happens, it brings life, doesn't it? When it doesn't happen, when someone is not invited, not wanted, not, when they're excluded, when they're ignored, the result is what? That person dies just a little bit. Hospitality is a statement of, of affiliation. It's a statement of relationship. I mean, that's why Jesus got himself into so much trouble a lot of the times. He chose the wrong people to eat with. He chose the wrong houses to go to dinner. And so these visitors tell Peter about Cornelius and his hunger for God and that God has spoken to him. And Peter is learning. He's starting to get it. He goes to Caesarea. He knocks on Cornelius' door. Cornelius answers and says, come on in. Now, how many times do you think Peter had actually gone into a Gentile's house? I'm guessing never, never happened because that would make him unclean to embrace someone. You don't want to embrace. That's a scary thing. But God tells him, go and in verse 25. It says, Peter enters the house. A very short phrase, but full of great meaning. So he goes through the open door and the world is never the same again for him or for the church. And he tells Cornelius the gospel. There was this man named Jesus who taught and, and did miracles and did great things. And he came from God. And, 
and he died for your sin and he, and he rose from the dead and I saw him and, and, and now I understand that, that he wants all people who trust and believe in Jesus to be a part of his kingdom. And he, and he begins to tell them this, this story. He begins to preach the gospel to them. And we're told that while Peter's sharing the gospel, sharing this story, that the Holy Spirit comes and it falls upon Cornelius and his spirit falls upon his friends, sort of a Gentile Pentecost. And then verse 34 says, Then Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation. This is often spoken of as the conversion of Cornelius, and it is. Cornelius comes to to life in Christ here. But at a deeper level, it's also the conversion of Peter. He realizes now that God is so much better, so much bigger, so much more loving, so much more gracious, so much more inclusive. He He realizes how big God's kingdom is and how he wants all people to be saved. And so in a sense, Peter is converted as well. His worldview is changed forever. His understanding of who God is and, God's, and the gospel has changed forever. There have been prejudice. There have been exclusivity. There have been all sorts of attitudes and cultural things a part of him, racism. And now it's beginning to be scraped away. He's walked through a door. The training wheels are coming off. And he has changed and the church is changed as well. There's an old hymn that has a very simple chorus. Maybe you remember it. There is room with a cross for you. Millions have come, still room for one. There's room with a cross for you. And the foot of the cross has not run out of space for the, over the past 2,000 years because that is the heart of God, to make space and room for all who will trust in his son, Jesus Christ. For 2,000 years, people all over the world have been coming to the cross. And when we come to the cross, we are told that God has made room for us. He's made space for us. And he calls us as his people to go then to share his love, to make space and room for others around us in our lives, in our church, to share his love and his truth with them. So who is God calling you to make space for? People who don't dress right or talk right or look right or act right? People here in Slina, people in our church, people on the other side of the world? Maybe it's somebody in your family or at work, your neighborhood, maybe at your school. God calls us to make space for others just as he has made space for us. Perhaps you've um, heard this story. It's a a powerful story uh, about a changed perception and worldview, a changed life and a heart that, that makes room for someone who was excluded. And the difference that that makes for someone who's now noticed and loved and cared for. It's a story about a teacher named Jean Thompson and a student named Teddy Stollard. Teddy was disinterested in school, wore wrinkled clothes, hair was rarely combed, unattractive, unmotivated, distant, just not really involved, not real easy to like. And even though Miss Thompson said she loved all her students the same, inside she wasn't really being truthful. She really didn't have much feeling uh, for, for Teddy. She should have known better, though. She had Teddy's records, and she had read what it said. The report said, first grade, Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude, but he has a poor home situation. 
Second grade, Teddy could do better. His mother is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade, Teddy is a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Teddy's very slow but well-behaved. His father shows no interest. Christmas came, and the boys and girls in Miss Thompson's class brought her Christmas presents. They all gathered around her desk to watch her open them. And among them was one from Teddy Stoller, which kind of surprised her, but he, he brought her a gift. It was wrapped in round paper held together by scotch tape. On the outside, it simply said, For Miss Thompson, from Teddy. And she opened Teddy's present, and out fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. Other boys and girls began to giggle and smirk, but Miss Thompson had at least enough sense to silence them by putting on the bracelet and spraying a little bit of the perfume on her wrist and holding up. Doesn't it smell wonderful? And the kids took their cue from the teacher and agreed. At the end of the day, when school was over and the other children had left, Teddy lingered, and he came over to her desk and said softly, Miss Thompson... Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother, and her bracelet looks really pretty on you, too. I'm glad you like my presence. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her. And the next day, when the kids came back to school, they had a new teacher. It was Miss Thompson, but she was a different and new teacher. She was now committed to loving all her children and doing things for them that would live on after her. She helped all of them, but especially the slow ones, but most especially of all of them, Teddy Stollard. And by the end of the school year, he began to show dramatic improvement. The next year, he went on to the next grade, and she didn't hear from him for a long time. And then one day, she received a note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I'll be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to know, to be the first to know, that college has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, M.D. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th, to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. When we make space and room in our lives for people that others don't notice, we're following the example of Jesus Christ. We're we're living out the gospel. In the kingdom of God, God has made space for us. He's made room for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we, as his people, are to make space for those around us. Because that's what God did for us. When we gather together on Sunday morning for worship, that's what we are to do, to make space for each other, to notice the loner, the quiet person, the grieving person, the person on the outside, the person who is not popular or well-known. We are to make space for each other. When we gather for coffee after church or before the service, that's what we're to do. When we go to school or to work, when we're in our neighborhood, when we're at the mall, we're to make space for those people around us because that's what God has done for us. And when we come to the table, as we are going to do in just a moment, we are reminded and remember that through Jesus Christ and through the cross, God has made room. He's made space for us because that's how inclusive the kingdom of God is. Any person, any gender, any race, any nationality, any age, God will make room for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ 
who repent of their sin and who follow him. And God wants our communion, our community. He wants it to grow and to expand because there is room at the table. There's room at the cross for many, many more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example that he set when he walked this earth to reach out to love all people. We thank you for the truth of the story that God does not show favoritism, but wants all people to be part of his kingdom, to be saved, to know his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to the table, we are humbled because you have made room for us. And we are, we are motivated, Lord, because of that, to make room for others. Help us to have hearts and minds and eyes to see the people around us as you see them. People worthy of attention. People worthy of an invitation. People worthy of being loved. We thank you, Father. So, Lord, now as we come to this table, we remember that Jesus died for our sin that his body was broken, his blood was shed. And Lord, we pause for a moment of silence to confess our sin, to ask for your forgiveness, to ask for your strength and help to be the people that you've called us to be.